John chapter 10, verses 22 to 30. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them and said, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. My goal for us this morning is very simple, and that is to show you as believers the Lord Jesus Christ. As believers, we are always growing in our appreciation, devotion, adoration, praise, and worship of who Christ is. You may have read the gospel a number of times. You have probably read this passage and know it pretty well. And yet there is always more to know about Christ. We don't fully know him yet. Young or old, new believer, mature saint, there is always more to know, hear, and see from Christ. So as we're going through this passage verse by verse, ask yourself some simple questions. As a believer, as a child of God, how can I know him more? My God, my Lord, my Savior, And how will these things that I learn about him cause me to give him greater love and devotion? Now, I just want to step back and just kind of set the context as to where we're at. We're jumping right here in the middle of John's gospel and right in the middle of chapter 10. And there's a lot going on. Now, the 10th chapter of John records for us the last account of Jesus' public ministry. Beginning in chapter 11, you'll see there that he raises Lazarus from the dead, and that's not public. He then, in chapter 12, goes into the triumphal entry. And so the triumphal entry is just a week away from his death and soon to be his resurrection. Chapters 13 to 16 all cover one night on Thursday evening there in the upper room discourse. And then chapter 17, Jesus prays to that father in the high priestly prayer. Chapter 18 follows with his death and his resurrection. That just shows you how close we are in John chapter 10 to the death of our Lord. Chapter 10 is very important because the apostle John is making sure that his readers of his gospel are crystal clear in the terms of the claims of Christ, what he said and what he did in 
public for all eyes to see. John states the purpose of his gospel in chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31. You don't have to turn there, but he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose that John wrote this gospel. And so the Apostle John is piling up more and more evidence so that the readers of his gospel will believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ and coming to faith in him. And so it is unmistakable to anybody to what the claims of Christ really were. It is the Holy Spirit who inspired the writers of the New Testament, who inspired John, the apostle, to write down these claims. And the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, knows very, very well that there will always be confusion surrounding the person, work, and claims of Jesus Christ. Sinners are always going to try and bring doubt, speculation, conjecture, suspicion, rejection, and plain old unbelief when it comes to the claims and person and work of Christ. All that he said and all that he did. And I just, I love the way, the clarity that John writes when he records what he saw from the life of our Lord. And you ask, what were some of those claims Well, you can read the entirety of John's gospel, and there's a ton of them, and I won't go through all of them, but just one right there in chapter 10 and verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. That's a claim. Now, if that's hard for you to wrap your brain around, that Christ is one with the Father, well, look at the Jews' response in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them and said, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him and said, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. This is the third time in John's gospel where the Jews attempt to stone Jesus for his assertion that he was one with the Father. Even before chapter 10, in chapter 8, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. But in chapter 8, the Jews were claiming to be the children of Abraham. And Jesus was proving to them that they're liars. And in chapter 8 and verse 56, he said to the Jews, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus places himself there with Abraham and even before Abraham. So either Jesus is really old or He's eternal. 
And even then, in verse 59 of chapter 8, the Jews picked up stones again to throw at him. Why stones? Well, Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 16, God commanded Israel to stone to death anybody who blasphemes the name of God. The Jews heard his words, heard his claims, and they knew exactly what he was saying. There was no Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons in the crowds to try and mishandle what Jesus was claiming. Everybody that heard what Jesus claimed knew exactly what he was saying. There was no confusion. And that's the summation of John's gospel. It's to make clear the claims of Jesus to be God, to possess the very nature of God. and that he could legitimately be called the Son of God, the one who bears the same nature as God. And he proved all of it by his works. He didn't just claim it, he proved it over and over and over again, so that anyone who had ears to hear and eyes to see could be easily convinced to who he was. But not everybody was easily convinced, were they? In John chapter 10, we have the last account, the last conversation between Jesus in the public over his claims. And yet again, it is met with unbelief. Now, beginning in verse 22, I'm just going to have two points for you, real simple. Verses 22 to 24 is the confrontation between Jesus and the Jews, the confrontation. And in verses 25 to 30, we have the claim. Jesus speaks and he claims what he claims. Now, we're going to take it verse at a time, beginning there in verse 22. At the time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter. The Feast of Dedication, or the Feast of Lights, celebrated an Israelite victory of the Syrian leader Antiochus Epiphanes, who persecuted Israel in 170 B.C., so that would be that intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew, that 400 years of silence we often refer to. And during that time, this caused the Jews to rise in revolt against Antiochus. And that was led by a priest and his sons. And after three years of warfare, they were able to retake Jerusalem. And so this celebration that the Jews commemorate, this celebration looks to that time. It wasn't a biblical um, feast. This is just a feast that the Jews had in their history, in their tradition that they often celebrated. Today, it's often known as Hanukkah. And it says there that Jesus was there during that feast, and it was winter, in verse 23, Jesus was also walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. 
The portico of Solomon was a common place. It was what was left of Solomon's temple that was destroyed in 586 B.C. And that temple was redeveloped into a porch or a colonnade. And it had a roof that you can go under that, can, can, that could protect you from the elements, from the rain. Rabbis often taught there with their students. And later in the book of Acts, you actually have in Acts chapter 5, believers are there proclaiming the gospel. And after uh, Ananias and Sapphira are struck down, the apostles were doing many signs and wonders among the people in Acts chapter 5, and it was there in the portico of Solomon. In verse 24, at that feast, it's winter, Jesus is in the colonnade of Solomon, and so these Jews gathered around and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They surrounded him. They encircled him. And they demanded that, they, that he tells him plainly who he is. Now, some commentators would try to have us believe that this is maybe a different group of Jews who are actually genuinely trying to ask if he's the Messiah. But I don't, I don't see that for a few reasons. One, I, I do believe that if this was a different group of Jews, I think John would state that. And whenever John uses the term the Jews, it's always a term of dissension. Jesus heals a man born blind. He says what he says, and here comes the Jews to question what he did, to try to trip him up on his words and his deeds. And John also shows us what was on the hearts of these Jews every time they're interacting with Jesus. You don't have to turn there, but in John chapter 5, I'm sure you know it well, in that account, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, breaking their Sabbath traditions. And in John chapter 5 and verse 17, John says, Jesus answered them saying this to the Jews, my father is working until now, and I am working also. Verse 18 this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. From that moment on, murder was on the heart of the Jews as soon as Christ made himself out to be God. And nothing has changed. From that moment on, the claims of Christ only intensified from there on out. They even became more frequent from John chapter 5 on throughout his public ministry. Even after that time at the Sabbath where he heals that man, Jesus then affirms even more of his claims. In John chapter 5 and verse 21, Jesus says, For as the Father can raise the dead and give life to whom he will, so the Son can give life to whom he will. The Father has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son just as much as they honor the Father. 
Deity after deity, claim after claim after claim. Chapter six, I am the bread of life. Chapter eight, I am the light of the world. Chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. And there in chapter 10 and verse 31, we're not going to go over these verses, but there after Jesus claims what he claims, that he's one with the Father, the Jews picked up stones, what? Again, showing us that they've done this before. And they're hearing the same things from Jesus, and they have the same exact response. So I think it's the same exact Jews here. And I don't believe that this is an honest attempt to gather information to Jesus, from Jesus. It's just another attempt to trap him in his own words with the motive to be rid of him. They want to shut him down. Jesus showed us early on in his ministry in John chapter 3 and verse 19, you know this well, that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Jesus has for three years now exposed the works of the Jews for the wickedness that it was and they want to shut him down for that. Just a side note. Whenever you see in John's gospel, the Jews, it's always to show that term when the Jews come and they show their scorn, unbelief, and rejection of Christ. And we may make this mistake and think, oh, those Jews again, just rejecting Christ, rejecting Christ, rejecting Christ. And it's true. But that is heartbreaking to Christ every single time those Jews come to reject him over and over again. He's not having fun here. John chapter 1, Christ came into the world to his own people, and his his own people received him not. The nation of Israel is rejecting its Messiah, its one and only Messiah, its one and only Savior, and Christ felt the weight of that rejection like nobody else. And church, if it wasn't for the sovereign grace and electing grace of God, you would be right there, rejecting him all along the way with however much evidence is before you. Point two, Jesus responds with his claim. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, and said, I told you, and you do not believe. The problem of unbelief is not a lack of information. The problem of unbelief is not a lack of truth, but rather of spiritual blindness. The Jews Jews lacked repentance and faith, which are given as gifts from above. Even if Jesus succumbed to their questioning and answered the way that they wanted to, 
they still wouldn't believe because the information of who he was wasn't the issue for them. In verse 25, he says, I told you, I've told you, and you do not believe. And the works that I do in my Father's name also bear witness about me. Not only have I already told you plainly who I am, the works that I have also done over and over again prove who I am. You would think, wouldn't, wouldn't his miracles prove the authenticity of his claims? I mean, surely, right after Jesus just heals a very well-known man who's born blind, he heals him and he sees for the very first time it would cause them to react the same way that Nicodemus did. For no one can do these signs unless God is with him. But they didn't have that response. So how do you explain the miracles of Jesus away? Matthew in his gospel tells us what the Jews believed about the miracles of Christ. In Matthew chapter 12, after Jesus healed a man who was demon-oppressed, the Pharisees said to Jesus about Jesus, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. They believed that what Jesus did, what he did, by the power of Satan. They never tried to explain away the miracles. They couldn't do it. It was completely obvious. They have to result to another conclusion. What he is doing, he is doing by the power of Satan. What Jesus did by the power of the Holy Spirit, they are saying is demonic, is actually satanic. And that's what we call the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That is spiritual blindness. That is spiritual deadness, church, at its finest. So what's the problem? He has claimed what he claimed. He has the Father's name. He is bearing witness about me. He is doing these works and verse 26, and you still do not believe. What's the problem? There in verse 26, you are not part of my flock. Jesus tells them the reason why they do not believe. This is nothing new in John's gospel. He's already said the same truth in a different way. Turn over to John chapter 8. I want you to see this one. John chapter 8 and verse 42, Jesus said to the Jews, if God were your father, then you would love me because I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Why? You are Because you are of your father, the devil, 
and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. If God were your father, if you were children of Abraham the way you are claiming, and if you knew him, you would love me, and you would accept my words. Verse 27, go back to John chapter 10. You don't believe me because you are not part of my flock. But my sheep... My sheep hear my voice. My sheep don't come and demand these pressing questions on who I am. My sheep know me, and I know them, and they hear my voice. My sheep hear my call. They hear my invitation to repent. They hear me, and they believe me without hesitation or without any objection. Back in chapter 10 and verse 4, you don't have to turn there. I know you know it well when Jesus is proclaiming himself to be the good shepherd and he is showing the illustration of the shepherd and sheep relationship. He says about the sheep that they follow him in verse 4, for they know his voice. Verse 5, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Philip Keller, in his book, A Shepherd Looks at the Good Shepherd and His Sheep, writes this, that the relationship which rapidly develops between a shepherd and the sheep under his care is to a definite degree dependent upon the use of the shepherd's voice. Now follow me. Sheep quickly become accustomed to their owner's particular voice. They are acquainted with its unique tone. They know its peculiar sounds and inflections. They can distinguish it from that of any other person. If a stranger should come among the sheep, they would not recognize nor respond to his voice in the same way they would to that of their own shepherd. Even if the visitor should use the same words and phrases as that of their rightful owner, they would not react in the same way. It is a case of becoming actually conditioned to the familiar nuances and personal accent of their own shepherd's call. That's the picture that Jesus is drawing between him as the shepherd and his sheep. They know him and they know nobody else. They hear his voice and they don't know any other voice. They follow him and they follow nobody else. In verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them. What does he mean he knows them? Well, Christ knows everybody, but there's a different kind of knowing. Psalm chapter 1 and verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows everything, but there is a personal intimacy 
and involvement that God has with his righteous ones. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, you know this passage. Christ says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus says, I will declare to them on that day, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. On that day, Jesus knows exactly who those people are and what they're claiming to be. It's literally, Jesus is saying, I have never known you in the way that you are claiming to know me. I've never had a relationship with you whatsoever. Friend, if you're joining us today and you know or you now know for the first time that you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ. We as a church would wholeheartedly plead and beg with you to not waste another minute or second of your life without crying out to God for mercy. Friend, you can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you can be saved. Believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. Believe that he lived a righteous, sinless, perfect life that you could never live and I could never live. Believe that he died in the place of sinners like you and me. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that in three days he rose from the grave victorious and thus validating everything that he ever said and did and showing that all of his claims were completely and utterly true and that he now reigns and rules from his rightful throne at the right hand of God where he rules and reigns as King of kings and Lord and Lord of lords and he now is able to give eternal life to whomever he will. Friend, if you are without Christ, today is the day of salvation. If you would, come to him by faith. I promise you, I've said this many times, he is a willing savior. If you look there in verse 28 of John chapter 10, this is what he does this is what he can do for you if you're without Christ, and this is what he does for his sheep. I give them what? Eternal life. There are many believers, sad to say, who believe that their salvation that's given or granted to them by God can actually be forfeited. They believe that a Christian can have, possess eternal life and walk away from Christ fully and finally and lose that eternal life that they once had. The issue of eternal security, perseverance of the saints, can someone lose their salvation? Sometimes you'll often hear people say that who are talking of the issue of eternal security, yeah, but there's both men on good sides. 
Some believe yes and some believe no, which can oftentimes mean, does it really matter? If there's good and godly men on both sides of the issue, does it really matter? Do we even really need to debate this? Well, it does matter. And it burdens me that there is believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that are not operating with the divine understanding that they will always be kept and that their salvation is reserved in heaven forever. There are those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and I love them dearly, but they do not believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation, that he comes and chooses his people, saves them from their sin, and completes their salvation from start to finish. This passage in John chapter 10 is one of, if not the clearest portions of Scripture that teach eternal security. That if you have salvation, it can never be thwarted. Look at verse 28. He says about his sheep, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That is so airtight and absolute that there is just no escaping the reality of the chain there of the Godhead's sovereign purpose and divine intention. There is nowhere to go right there. The entire sheep-shepherd illustration is to show that this good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, and he is such a good shepherd that he will never lose one of them in his care. John chapter 6 and verse 39, Jesus said that this is the will of him who sent me here, that of all of those that he has given to me, I should lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. To insist that a true Christian can somehow be lost or forfeit their own eternal life, listen, is to defame the very character of the good shepherd. It would make the Lord Jesus an incompetent shepherd for him to lose any one of his sheep. To say that he would lose any one of those that the Father has given into his care, we would have to conclude that Jesus failed in some way. Even if you give believers the free will to move away or leave salvation, you would still have to say that Jesus failed in some way. I'm just not willing to do that. Verse 29, if that's not enough, he says, My Father also, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. So whose hand are you really in? Both. Is this not the point of what we see in 
Romans chapter 8 and verse 38, where Paul says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, fallen angels, demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That includes yourself. Listen, church, there will not be one single soul who belongs to Christ that is ever going to be missing in heaven. There will not be one vacant room in the Father's house. There will not be one unused crown in heaven. Sam Storms, in his book, A Defense of the Perseverance of the Saints, says this, the basis for our security and salvation is not ultimately our righteousness or obedience, but on God's promise, God's power, and most of all, God's passionate love for us in Christ. God is committed to preserving us in faith. For if we were to stumble so as to fully and finally fall away, God stands to lose more than we do. Christ, as the loving, good shepherd that he is, he places every one of his sheep that he knows into the most protected space imaginable. And where is that? It's in the impenetrable grip of him and his father. And you will never, ever be lost or pluck from his omnipotent, gracious hand. One author writes, our salvation is certain because it is in the hand of God. Our faith is weak and we are prone to waver But God, who has taken us under his protection, is sufficiently powerful to scatter with the breath all the power of our adversaries. And in closing, you look at verse 30. If all that has been said isn't enough, he says, I and the Father are one. Jesus actually did answer the question of the Jews. He actually gave them way more than what they asked for. Christ is saying, I and the Father are one. We have equal deity. We have equal sovereignty. We have equal power. We are perfect in harmony. We have perfect agreement. We have the same exact purpose in securing our sheep forever. In the 17th chapter of John, Jesus speaking to the Father in that prayer, he said, Father, all things that are mine are yours, and all the things that are yours are mine. All the sheep, church, that belong to the Father belong to the Son. 
And church, if you're in the Lord Jesus Christ today, if you are in union with him, if you've been born again, your eternal rest, security, lies in the power and love of God. One last quote. When Charles Spurgeon came to faith and he had heard of God's preserving or protecting grace, he said that it was a bait for my soul that I found irresistible. That if I once committed my life to Christ, I knew that he would save and keep me forever. I would say that was maybe the fuel or the fire that lit Charles Spurgeon's ministry. Amen? Let's pray. It is only by your grace, Father, that you have caused us to see your works, your claims, your truth, in order to see our utter sinfulness before you. It is only because of your grace that you have given us the remedy you have placed the forgiveness of sins in your son, Jesus Christ. And by your love, you have caused us to be born again. You have given us a new heart. We didn't want such things. We were satisfied with the world. We were satisfied in our sin. But you took us out of that domain of darkness and you transferred us into the glorious kingdom of your beloved Son. This was your doing. And we praise you for such things. The Lord Jesus Christ, you are so beautiful to us in all that you do. Continue, Lord, to be our good shepherd, always reminding us in the midst of our sin and failures that you will always Keep us close to you, never to fully and finally fall away or falter to, to a degree that we ever lose your love. Convince us of all that you have accomplished through your death, resurrection, and your ascension. We thank you for the union that you have caused in us. Where you are, we are. And we long for the day to be with you for eternity. Father, thank you for these things. In Christ's name, amen.